Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very exciting episode of Cinematic Underdogs. I'm here and I'm back. It's been a quite a few guest appearances from, from this regular now. Uh, welcome to the pod, Mikey. Thanks for having me back on, Paul. I really appreciate it. I always enjoy getting to talk to you about uh, anything and everything. And this is definitely another one of those everything kind of podcasts. Yeah, it felt like you were going to say the title Everything Everywhere All One <laughs> right there. And uh, that'll be a perfect segue, too, because for a quick icebreaker, we're going to try to get as quickly as we can into the content of this episode, which is going to be a chronicling of the 100-Foot Wave Season 2. But before we get there, we want to do what we always do and set the scene. So it's weird to set the scene because we're in it. This came out a few months ago on HBO. And so just instead of digging into the box office, I'm just curious, what are your two or three favorite movies of the year? Or maybe your sort of underrated movies of the year, either or. So I just want to break the ice with that. What have you been watching in, in theaters and what have you really loved and want to recommend to people? I'll give two of my favorite films and then one underrated film. My two favorite films actually are both animated. One is obviously the blockbuster highest grossing film so far of the year and that's the super mario brothers movie love that film hits all the nostalgia feels for me as a kid growing up playing nintendo really just a very entertaining film loved it Uh, so that's one of my favorites and then the other favorite film of this year is an anime uh called suzumi which is just it's from the same director as weathering with you uh and your name Highly recommend it. It's probably my, uh, if I have to say my favorite film of the year, it's probably that one. And then as far as like an underdog type film, uh, it's Operation Fortune. It's a Jason Statham, Guy Ritchie film. Uh, Loved that film. Didn't get a lot of buzz. It kind of flew under the radar uh, when it came out in March. But love that film. Lots of humor, lots of action. Highly recommend that film. Oh, I had a ton of fun with that film. It's just a old classic kind of international, I don't know, caper slash heist film, right? It's very much a Guy Ritchie heist film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard it was Guy Ritchie's uh, pitch or or his trial run, meaning that he was just slyly doing this. No one was actually trying to petition him to do this, but, but his uh, attempt... To sort of wink at the studios to give him the reins of Bond. That that, that was one person's take. I thought that was quite funny. Maybe that was on uh, the big picture, I believe, where they kind of, I, I forget the the nickname they give his films. It's, they, they, they created a funny portmanteau and then they kind of like were trying to dissect the Guy Ritchie universe, right? The sort of like blue collar, low class, grimy, either Englishman or Irishman meets actually what's crazy about him is he has this dichotomy right too because it's either like snatch right where it's like irish gypsies or it's the fancy swagger heavy londonite who's always wearing a tux right he loves his suits he loves his his sort of like chic gentlemanly chivalrous style and panache i i kind of appreciate that i think gentleman uh the gentleman really captures his style very well and speaking of that movie right my favorite part of what, what was it again called the, the, the problem Oper- with operation fortune operation fortune it has some really weird uh secondary tile too right uh, ruse de guerre 
ruse de guerre, right? That, that French term. And it was like, it's just kind of a mouthful. But anyways, a very disposable good time too. Like, I don't mean this as a knock, but like a week after that came out, even like by the time I got home and put on my Letterbox review, I was like, this is one that I'm going to not remember and I don't care. It was a good time at the movies, right? But but for me, I loved, loved, loved Hugh Grant in that film. And Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was funny because I watched fortune about a week or two after dungeons and dragons honor among thieves and so to have a nice pairing of hugh grant in that kind of schmarmy heel bad guy type role that really it was almost like a a master course on how to play a a villain in that kind of role and that kind of sentiment is uh, is just very well done and i really enjoyed those two films kind of together with with him in that yeah, I mean, I absolutely been I love this phase of Hugh Grant's career, right? He he somehow turned from the like a different type of gentleman, right? He was like the literary bookish, handsome, safe guy, right? Like the Notting Hill Hugh Grant for so long, the rom-com Hugh Grant. And now he's kind of really leaning into this smarmy, sleazy old dude vibe that's still like really stylish, right? It's not like he's icky about it right but there's something sort of like aloof and hammy kind of like slapstick campy about his villainy but i i'm just really into it lately i kind of started with paddington right like paddington 2 didn't he play Mm -hmm. the the heel on that and everyone loved that and he's just been leaning into it i mean so much so that i mean i don't know if it was a bit or not but on the oscar red carpet right this was right after i actually watched operation (laughs) the the name i always will forget because (laughs) it's forgettable it's just too too generic but i've watched that film the one that I'm blanking on, even though you've already reminded me of it. Um, what is, Operation Fortune. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Came to my mind again. And then I think it was like a week later, Oscar season came out and he was so surly on the red carpet before the ceremony. I forget the details of what he was saying, but he literally threw a fit because he thought he was answering stupid questions and just started being blatantly rude. Did you happen to see that? I missed that, but but that, that almost sounds like he was kind of just playing it up almost. I'm like, I start to question that, right? Because it seems like there's this thing that happens between actors and their media appearances. And some is very blatantly so. Like on late night shows, sometimes they they, let's say, ham it up in a way to imitate their movies or somehow they create create this narrative about their life, this autobiographical detail that really gets focused on that has some sort of interaction with the thematic materials of their films. And they're able to sort of spin that into the media. Sometimes it's very overt. Like I said, like it's interviews and they're really calculated about it. And sometimes it's really organic and just happens to be this strange synthesis of the actor's real life personality sort of reflecting their character work. So I couldn't really tell if he was kind of playing a bit or just Hugh Grant, you know, kind of a a classic aged nonchalant Brit who's kind of over it. You know, he's been to the Oscars a bunch. And so I get why some people thought it came out as very undiplomatic and tactless in a way. But Uh, as gauche as it was it was hilarious too and it was like yes he's leaning into his heel even in real life like even his presentation at the oscars was kind of unseemly to to put it plainly anyways my transition how about let's uh get to my top three real quick 
The Covenant, actually. Guy Ritchie's other film. He threw his name in the title. A bunch of people complained about that. I understand kind of a weird decision to throw his name in the title, like Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Who cares? Well, if I if I remember right, the reason is because there's another film titled The Covenant that came out, I think, about a decade ago. And so to kind of differentiate it, that's why Guy Ritchie put his name on that film. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. I've heard two podcasts pile on that fact. And I get it. I get it. Both of them are like, what's this new trend of some directors throwing their name into the title? It feels a little narcissistic. And it just kind of, once again, creates like a word soup you know like who wants to say some super long director's name and then their film like it just also takes away from that the essence of the film is like it's so much more than one person you know what i mean like especially mm-hmm. film the medium of film is so collaborative and so multi-dimensional i mean i can see bo burnham calling inside bo burnham's inside that would be the, one of the only ones that would actually be i think uh loyal to the production of of, of the end product right because it was like a couldn't be any more of a solo project, but but anything else, it seems weird. Tangent aside, I, I love The Covenant. I think it's a really good, heartwarming, gripping, edge of your seat, kind of like almost semi-tragic, yet heartwarming tale of friendship across, you know, borders, a bond that goes beyond like language, sort of a mutual loyalty that comes from different different worlds, but different principle sets that really match each other. And both of the leads in the film are absolutely fantastic to me. I mean, I'm always a huge Jake Gyllenhaal fan, but Dar Salim is is just amazing. As the interpreter, um, it's set in Afghanistan. It's basically a local interpreter and a, I guess he's like a, a sergeant, right? That's the Jake Gyllenhaal mm-hmm. character. They get injured and they're stuck in, you know, the mountains of, you know, Taliban territory being hunted. And it, it's got drone footage. It's got like these crazy chasings, these crazy shootouts. Um, it really feels not like a Guy Ritchie film at all to me. It almost feels more like a Peter Berg film than anything. Uh, but I thought it was excellent. So that was my underrated film of the year. Uh, my two favorites, number one, Blackberry. Uh, I think Blackberry is just a knockout film about uh, the titular phone. And I wasn't expecting that much from Blackberry. Uh, I heard it was good already. And I had seen a few of Matt Johnson's previous films, who's the director and writer of this. But it just kind of blew me away. It It features one of the best performances of the year easily by Glenn Howerton as the sort of hardball CEO entrepreneurial type. And a really pretty decent performance. I mean, I always like Jay Baruchel, uh, but I think he's he's quite smooth in this um, as a sort of Wozniak-like figure, scrawnier. Um, but it's it's got that Wozniak Steve Jobs dichotomy going on. Um, it's kind of like the brains and then the entrepreneurial brawn, and about how those kind of come into friction, but how they also need each other, and both of their like fatal flaws come out in the film and emerge. There's lots of really cool camera techniques like Matt Johnson. I heard talking about how he used really long lenses and shot uh, these scenes that were super zoomed in, but from far away. So you get the feeling like you're kind of spying on the conversations. You're like, you're an outsider snooping in Um, just really smart dialogue crackles. Very funny. I laughed all the time. Uh, It's just one of the year's best. Did you, did you catch this one in theaters? 
I didn't. It it was at that time uh, when there were so many films out in the theater that the one that uh, is my local theater only ran it for about a week. And so I wasn't able to catch it because I was watching all these other films in the theater. Uh, but it's one that I am hoping comes on streaming soon so that I can catch it. I can't stand that. I always have to like organize and prioritize my movie watching schedule theatrically at least in very strange ways because i'm always like paranoid because you can't look ahead you don't have a crystal ball you know the big ones like the marvel ones will be there for like a good two months but some of these last for a long time right like they're like the little red engine that could and some of these just uh, one week and they're gone they disappeared so i I totally feel you on that such a bummer and so my other film that i want to give a shout out i'm there's a few so it's really tough but i'm just going to give it to infinity pool it's a pretty like in your face film. I get why some people are taken aback by it or they recoiled from it. Uh, maybe it's a little too like a 24 even though I don't think it's an a 24 film. I think it's a neon film, but yeah. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's a neon film. Thank you. Uh, it's Brandon Cronenberg and it's almost too much on the zeitgeist, like in the sense that it rem- resembles the menu quite a bit. It has a feel of a black mirror episode. It also kind of evokes um, a sort of satirization of the upper crust, you know, super wealthy oligarchical class of the world. Um, a little more fictional than most that have come out recently, but it reminded me of the, the White Lotus. It reminded me of Triangle of Sadness. You know, it's on an island uh, and there's a very violent satirical underpinning to it. And it's uh, much more weirder than that, though. Like the whole mirroring element, the whole idea of like ego death that the film gets into and I'm, I'm already sort of giving spoilers away and I usually don't care, but I don't want to give too much away. I'm not going to say any more. It's really a mind bender. Did you catch this one? Yeah, th- this was one was a huge pass for me just because uh, I'm not a fan of the director because uh, he kind of goes in those way out there kind of directions and just the, uh, and I like uh, Alexander Skarsgård. He, he's one of my favorite actors, but I couldn't get into that film at all. So I, uh, that's one of those ones where I like to say, uh, if you, if you enjoy it, that's great, but it just was not for me at all. Totally fair. Yeah. Like I, I kind of, I think prefaced my, my recommendation right off the bat with that. This is not going to be a movie for everyone. It's ultra like heady more than anything. I think it's a mixture of like hyper cerebral and ultra violent too, but also like there's a, there's a like energy of, of Dionysian fervor. There's like a degeneracy in it. It's hedonistic debauched it's not a it's not a family friendly film by any sense of the imagination but as great as mia goth has been and as amazing as she was in pearl for whatever reason her role in this movie sticks in my head more but uh it's been a weird year uh it's been up and down for me a little weaker still but but we're coming into like the really hot season for the blockbusters and then we're going to get into like when when fall comes around like all the auteur films Icebreakers aside, now let's jump into the main event, uh, which is the 100-Foot Wave and season two. Now, this is an HBO series. The first season debuted in 2021. It won an Emmy, and it had a much different focus than this one, right? The first one was the sprawling kind of epic tale of really a single person's quest right? Garrett McNamara's quest for the biggest wave, right? The hundred foot wave. It also catalogs, you know, 
the emergence of big wave surfing and introduces you to a lot of the big names. And it, it meanders, kind of like season two. But without digging too much into season one, that, I think that's really interesting is that that one had this like decade spanning overview, right? And you're kind of like getting introduced into this like life journey. Whereas this one, now you've like understood the world of uh, big wave surfing. You've gotten to know Garrett and his posse and you are kind of just thrown in a very like need for speed, uh, hard knock style way into a chronicling of the recent year in the sports. Centered, I should say, the most maybe grounding thing about the whole series is Nazare, right? This is this spot that Garrett found at the midway point in his career off the coast of Portugal. No one had heard of it. And it ends up having like the biggest big waves in the world. So anyways, as someone who's seen both, what was your first like reaction to the changes that were made between season one and season two? Well, you kind of got into it there with kind of that description of how season one was kind of sprawling in a 10 year or so uh, journey. I was reminded of this as I was kind of reflecting on the season two and and going back and rewatching it and everything, how that was originally season one was supposed to be a movie. It was supposed to be a film and they got like six hours worth of footage. Uh, And so they just decided to, instead of making it a film and trying whittling it down to go ahead and making it a docu-series, which ultimately was the right call. They, they did a great job with kind of making it into a series and, and going with the episodic nature to it. But it really, with season two, it's more of kind of the what's next. What happened next with this group that we came to know over this 10-year span uh, in season one? Kind of, we're seeing it now as kind of that that next step with them. And I think more so with the ensemble cast, more so than Garrett and his family. Although we get Garrett and his family together and we see kind of, where they are as their journey progresses, but we get more of the, you know, the next generation uh, of those that were inspired by Garrett, seeing them take kind of center stage uh, on, you know, on the scene of big wave surfing. Yeah, that's really well put, right? So although the first season does have a lot of these names in it, the second season, we really get to know some of the other big wave surfers and kind of list the names and kind of try to describe them as quickly as I can to try to set the scene for people, um, hopefully people that have seen this, but also people who are just interested in it. So in season two, we're not only following Garrett McNamara, who is this Hawaiian, right? He's full of life. He loves big wave surfing. He kind of blossomed late because his brother was a big hit and he kind of fell into a shadow for years and then just kind of emerged with these huge waves he caught on Jaws, like in the early aughts, and slowly kind of carved his own space, became a huge phenomenon, got on a ton of magazines and won a bunch of awards. And then he he kind of dedicates his life suddenly uh, to learning about this wave and writing this wave that's never been really written before. It was a, It's a fisherman town, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a little Portuguese village, pretty much. In, in between, you know, Porto, and Lisbon. And so it's kind of off the beaten path. And, you know, he gets an email from someone he's never even heard of before, comes and checks it out and falls in love with the wave. It's kind of like this cool love story. So all that, that's season one. So here, what we're getting is all of these big time surfers who are now finally 
excited about this wave, right? Because it went through years of everyone kind of being pessimistic or just territorial maybe because they like love Jaws and they love Mavericks. They got all their names or just naturally dubious about anything that's new. For whatever reason it was, they were very reluctant to even like accept or invite the notion that this wave was what it was, right? No one would listen to Garrett for a while. But now they, you know, they've seen the pictures. He he won the awards. He got the Guinness Book of World Record for the largest wave that was ever written at that time, at least, right? Because these are constantly broken. And so we're getting a whole new cast. And the ones that took out for me the most this season, right, is Justine Dupont, who's, I think she's from Bordeaux in France. We got Kai Lenny. Uh, Hawaiian. And we got a bunch of Brazilians, right? We got Pedro Scooby, who's like kind of the partier frat boy. Uh, we got Michelle de Bouillon. And uh, I think, I forget his name, but but her husband, right? They're, they're kind of a, a tandem. We got Lucas Chumbo, right? He's great. He's usually uh, the partner with Kai. He's quite talented, a great jet ski driver. And uh, we also got this really young prodigy, Antonio, who's a Portuguese local. And he really comes strong in season two. Uh, and of course, there's also CJ and Cotty, who are really well known from the first season, who are part of Garrett's inner circle, right? CJ is his brother-in-law and Cotty is part of that initial crew, right? He's one of the mm-hmm. first pioneers, like on the Westward Trail. I kept thinking of that in a way, like, you know, when they're first exploring this wave, it had it has this feeling of of adventure in the raw sense of like an unmapped territory and mapping it out and learning about it and mastering it. And here, what's so different, right, is that it's been mapped. People understand the game plan. They know the, the basic logistics of how to maneuver this wave, even though it's quite hard. It's quite unorthodox, right? It doesn't follow like an easy coral break, right? Like Jaws, like the waves kind of come from every direction. It can be a little disorienting. But even with its insanity, right, by by the time this starts during the pandemic, there's a sense of familiarity with Nazare. And so we're really just welcome into its emerging as one of the top destinations in the world. And we're getting thrown into all the events happening there, the big, big storms and big, you know, swells that come in and really just kind of learning about these characters and all about with all those characters that I mentioned. Which for you, did you latch on the most while watching this? And kind of why? Like, what's your favorite big time surfer in season two other than Garrett? I think for me, like with season two, I really like Tony because he really kind of tells the story of Nazare as kind of the the development of the sport and just the development of Nazare as a town. Tony kind of really encapsulates that because... He is like the direct influence of what Garrett and that crew did by coming to Nazare. He is influenced by that. He sees what they're doing. He wants to get involved. And so he gets the training. He gets to doing all the, the things necessary to so that he can get out there. And he's eager. He's excited. And, you know, he has his dad as his tower. And so you have that relationship there and, and how they interact with one another. And really, it's just it's kind of cool because it shows kind of, like I said, the development of the town and in the development of him as kind of one of the up and coming people in the circuit is him and so it was really cool kind of seeing that the groundwork that garrett and his generation did to kind of bring the sport up we see tony as kind of that next step of that and seeing him 
develop and grow and kind of be one of the ones that's going to take it to the next step after that, I thought was really cool. Yeah, great choice, right? He's a precocious talent, right? Like his father is, I think, one of the head like medics, right? Like he's really highly trained at first aid, I believe they say, or like CPR and resuscitation. Mm -hmm. And he's also one of the best towers, right? Like people who tow in the surfers in Nazare. So he definitely nurtures Tony, right? But there's so much story there. I love the fact that his family had to like, I don't know if they had to sell a lot, but they, or they have to live a very humble life at least, right? A very basic car. You know, they're not like dirt poor by any stretch of the imagination. But there was some interesting stuff in the first episode where the father, Tony's father, is talking about the sacrifices a family is making just to invest in their son. At the same time, their son at this point early on is so young, he's getting criticism for having him out there on these waves, right? These soul-defying mammoth waves that are the size of skyscrapers or at least many apartment buildings in New York City. They'd love to make that reference. That's why I brought that one up. Mm -hmm. And so he has to battle that sort of like social fear of, and just the personal responsibility of putting your son into jeopardy with the fact that he is this talent and he could change and transform their lives. And then they also just genuinely love surfing. It comes out, it resonates right away. So I really love that about his story, right? I love their their sort of humble local perspective. Um, he's also somehow the the only native, and I don't mean that in a loaded use of the word at all, but like somebody like Portuguese from the town and an outsider, right? Like he's he's too young, and I don't know. There is sort of like a slight. Might just be because he's too young, but it feels like he's kind of marginalized a little bit when he's not chosen later in the season, right, to participate in the big tournament, right? I think I think it goes back to the the age thing. I think really it's the ones that are kind of the old guard. They kind of look at Tony as like that they're happy for him that he loves the sport and and all that, but it's kind of the not yet hold on <laughs> you're not at that part yet where you can you know hang with the the big dogs you gotta you gotta wait your turn you gotta pay your dues so to speak and so i think that's kind of it's more of that aspect of it than anything because that they're happy that he's a part of it they're excited that he's around but you know when it comes to the the major events they don't think he's ready yet and of course obviously he thinks he's ready because you know he's literally grown up with it being there in Nazare and he and him being a local you know he, he feels like that you know he's a hometown guy you know he wants to represent his community and so you have that kind of tension going on between the age factor of him you know wanting to represent but at the same time not being old enough so to speak to the old guard that's there yeah, totally. And they also just don't know about his jet ski skills. And that's one of the things we really learn is that no longer is surfing a solo sport when it gets to the, into this phase, right? It's a team sport and you have to actually be very skillful at multiple positions per se to be in, this, in some of these championships just for the logistics to work, right? Uh, and so that's why he isn't able to go out there until later when Justine vies for him, right? Or she she backs him. And she's one of, you know, the most lauded surfers in the world, rightfully so. And I think one of the other storylines of Tony's that I really love throughout this, maybe 
maybe one of the more heartwarming ones of the entire season is their budding relationship, right? She is so awesome with him. She kind of takes him under her wing. Um, You can't leave her long-term boyfriend out of it as well, Fred, but it's really those two, right? It's really Justine and Tony. They're playful. uh, They're little daredevils. They they got a mischievousness that's extremely innocent. And, you know, like during the pandemic, they're skateboarding all the time. And then when Tony is not chosen the first time, Fred and Justine take them on a quick getaway to an island off the coast, right? To surf some waves, just to pick up his spirits because he's so distraught about it. And that's the other thing about Tony is he's he's at that age still where he's just so honest. And I actually appreciate that. Like when he's not chosen, he's bummed. And the producer or the director, I don't know which one, the cameraman asked him, were you mad at Garrett? Because Garrett's literally the one in charge of curating the tournament, of hand choosing the day and the people who are going to compete. And he I get, is the one who by default then leaves out Tony, right? And at first you see him trying to do the diplomatic thing, right? And say no, and he isn't able to. <laughs> and he, he he's still very tactful about it. He doesn't say anything trashy or slanderous towards Garrett. He still respects him, but he isn't able to say that he wasn't bummed. And, and, I, and I like that honesty that comes out of him. And I like that his energy, he still wants to prove himself. He's still hungry. Like after the tournament, him and his dad go out there because there's still a huge crowd on the, the cliffs with the lighthouse, the iconic lighthouse watching. And he just has a killer set, just like hitting wave after wave after wave. And that was a really cool little moment in the in the series. So that was a great first choice for a character. And I'm uh, really glad that you chose him. So now pivoting really quick, right? The season is both chronological and scattered. The first season is also chronological, but like I said, it spans so long that that it feels like it has a narrative arc. Here, there's no real narrative arc, right? We're watching big events. Uh, We get this lull with the pandemic that comes in. We get some huge storms. We get some competitions. Uh, You know, it's just kind of like miscellaneous vignettes and storylines, backstories, right? And I like it. It's very episodic. It's very like freeform. And so to try to structure this a little bit, right, I'm going to just try to go chronologically as well. But I, but I also want to keep it open to that free form, that spontaneity, as we've already done. We've already brought in moments from the later episodes. And hopefully that will allow us to better catalog uh, this kind of sprawling season. A lot happens in, in the course of six episodes, right? So episode one, Epsilon, right? Epsilon, if anyone remembers, is the name of the huge storm, uh, right? Hurricane Epsilon that kicks off in the midst of the pandemic and also just gives this huge surge to the swell and creates a momentous day in Nazareth. October 2020, you know, we're at the height of COVID. There's fear on the minds of everyone. They mention this and there's these just intimidating, formidable waves that come in. And despite the restrictions, every big surfer in the world somehow manages to get visas and into Portugal and a a crop of people too, like thousands, maybe like 20, 30,000 swarm the cliff to watch them just hit monster wave after monster wave. And I want to let you, I guess, kind of set the scene for this episode and this event. Like, what did you take away from Epsilon? Really, for me, it was kind of one of those, for lack of a better term, perfect storm moments with Epsilon, uh, because you could see how they were all watching the television, watching the weather channel or, you know, all tracking the weather. 
and they were seeing exactly the path that Epsilon was taking. And they knew it was going to make that little curve and then come around as, you know, most hurricanes in the Atlantic do and head towards Europe and head towards the Portugal coast. And they were seeing that it was on track for Nazare. And so you had Garrett and you had uh, all, all the different crews all around the world. Cause you had, you know, uh, Garrett's crew in Hawaii. You know, you mentioned the, the crew that was down in Brazil. Uh, you have the ones in England with Cadi and, and that crew. They were all keeping track of the storm and they all could see it days, even, you know, weeks out where it's coming. And, oh, my gosh, this, you know, they're going to be such massive waves. You know, we have to get there. But, you know, as you mentioned, it's, you know, in the middle of COVID and all the lockdowns. And, you know, it was just, you know, even in October, you know, there wasn't a lot of travel that was going on. And if there was, you know, it was massive undertakings to do that, you know, even just to travel locally to make, you know, intercontinental flights is, you know, a very daunting task. But, you know, you could see in the episode how all these different groups were, they got that big wave fever. You know, they, they were so much wanting to be a part of this and they were literally wanting that so bad that they were willing to jump through all the hoops that were necessary to make that travel. And so you, you see that, uh, you know, in the episode and how they had to weigh all of this going on. And, and even with that, even with all the restrictions, even with all the hoops, you know, they wanted it so bad that they were willing to make that trip to Nazare. And so I think that was the kind of the most interesting part of the episode was, you know, seeing kind of the mind turning as they were watching these forecasts and knowing, you know, even with everything going on, they wanted it so bad that they were willing to to do that. And so you, you kind of see that excitement start to build in kind of going back to season one with how they were all excited about the big waves. You, you kind of saw that light and that spark there again, uh, even in the first episode of season two of how they wanted to jump in on that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's just one of those epic days. And you know, if you're not into the world of surfing, you might think that every day is kind of the same, right? Like you go out and there's waves if you're just an average beachgoer and you don't really think too much about the variance in size, right? Or the way they form or like just like, you know, all of the intricacies of a swell. But as you're watching this show, you realize they really have to travel the globe chasing swells, right? Chasing these great surf days. And this was just like, as you noted, like the perfect storm. Just the footage is epic, right? Because season one, until the last episode where we have our first international competition, it's pretty much only Garrett and his few friends, basically Cotty and Al. A few other people come in and out, but now we have a whole posse, a whole cluster, right? A traffic jam, a log jam, I think is what they call it, of professional surfers out there. And it turns into for lack of a better word, kind of a shit show at times, right? It's a circus, uh, which is the title of episode two, right? Because the episodes bleed into each other, right? And I guess for that sake, we just should really just talk about the first two together because they really are more than anything, a cohesive whole. And that's the circus is burning. Um, they're the pandemic episodes, right? And they're both really based around this one swell. And just some of the things that happen are unbelievable. I mean, we get the new world record. A German named Sebastian Studner, he hits the Guinness world record 
uh, for an 86 foot tower, which is funny because you hear time and time again, people be like, I hit a hundred foot wave. And I think they legitimately believe it. But when it comes to like the, the higher powers doing the very nebulous job, I say nebulous, it's a weird word, but it's all conjecture to a degree, right? They're using photos and they're multiplying the size of the human body to try to, to try to calculate the size of the wave, right? As is noted in season one. So it's, it's really murky what the actual feat of a wave is, but it it's purported to be an 86 foot tower that he hit and it turns him into an ant. It's just a monster, monster feat, triumph. And it's, it's still the world record holder, which is apropos too, because I was reading about Sebastian, right? And a few years earlier, he hit this also massive wave in Nazare that went viral, hit a billion plus views across all the social media platforms. And somehow it was misattributed to Rodrigo Coxa. So Rodrigo is known from the first season a lot. He's a Brazilian surfer. And I think he, for a brief while, had the world record as well, if I'm not mistaken. But Sebastian got royally screwed. So if you know anything about surfing, you live pretty much off sponsorships and off of ads and so like you need those big clips and when someone else's name gets latched onto a piece of footage they're making thousands of dollars when you're the one that actually is surfing in that clip it's got to be painful and whether it was conniving or whether there was some sort of like i don't know subterfuge going on or it's just a simple human error this scenario royally screwed sebastian over so it just feels so karmic that he was the one that now holds the world record at least for a period of time he's got to be making bank off that so we have that and we have some pretty royal wipeouts as well right we have tony who goes out there and his dad and they throw a fit and they had maybe one of the most visceral wipeouts of the whole series. And there's a ton. I mean, the, these surfers know how to take a, a wipeout and get back up and they break bones. You know, they nearly die. We'll get into all the, the details later. But in this episode, the one that stuck out to me was when Kai Lenny is thrown from his board and pounded, right? And he has the GoPro camera on his head, right? Mm-hmm. I love how Cavalier, and he just like literally in a moment of, moral danger and he's still worried about the shot being really cool right and he keeps filming between each set because he's he wipes out and then his uh rescue team can't get to him so he's just getting pounded by wave after wave after wave and each time one of these things comes in he's gotta like i think get just tossed around like as if you're in a laundry machine underwater right like you're just completely at the behest of mother nature's fury and then go through another tumultuous round. Right. Um, And that's just one of the most like immersive experiences. And that brings me to one thing that this season has that the first season does not have. And it has quite a bit of a boost in technology right now. We got drones. We got GoPros on the tips of the boards, on the helmets. We got helicopters, which happened on, on Garrett's big day in the first season. But now there's it feels like there's cameras everywhere and it gives us multidimensional understandings of what it feels like to be one of these surfers in the barrel of a humongous wave. And it adds to the cinematography. And I wanted to know, like, what was your feeling about two things, like some of the wipeouts, uh, some of the other big waves in episode one and two, and your feeling of the, the cinematography, just the visual panache of this season as a whole? 
Yeah, I mean, you you kind of hit on it very well as far as like the technology and how it's kind of advanced uh, to what we got here in season two. Because you know, in season one, you know, it's starting out in the early two thousand, early mid two thousands, and technology was not you know at the point of having high definition cameras or drones or GoPros at the extent of what we have now. You, you see a lot better and clearer. You know what it is that these surfers go through to get on the onto the waves, to hang on the waves, whether they crash or not. You get to see a lot more first person experiences with that, and I think that it's helpful in a lot of ways of showing just the beauty of it as to why uh, these surfers do what they do, because you get that rush, that adrenaline rush, just by watching them and seeing them ride those waves. You see it. From their perspective and how thrilling and how exciting that is, it, it makes you understand why they do it. But at the same time, when they wipe out, you see the danger that comes along with it, both in the, you know, like I said, the first person perspective of it. And then also just from the drone perspective of being able to have seen those drones, you know, hover, you know, so close and, and seeing, you know, explained about the churn of the water there uh, whenever they would wipe out in, in the area that's not necessarily near shore, but it's close enough to shore uh, so that you have the rocks there, but it's not near the rocks. So you, you have the dangers of uh, the tide either throwing them to the rocks by the shore or kicking them back out into deep water. You, know, you see that very clearly with the drones there, just the churning water and, it, and how it's all white. I, I thought that that's one thing too that uh, was really interesting in watching that area is just how how it gets churned up so much that it you can't see to the bottom. And they talked about that too whenever they wiped out, how you know they were so disoriented and not knowing which way is down, which way is up. And so they're all very reliant on the towers and the rescue teams for making sure that, you know, they get to safety. And, you know, we see, we talked earlier about the, the importance of that pairing together, uh, the tower and the surfer, and, and how they are really interconnected relationally. You know, we see father-son, obviously, with Tony and his dad. Uh, we see Justine and, and her a longtime boyfriend, uh, how they're paired together uh, as tower and, and surfer. You know, there has to be that kind of connection there because it's in some ways it's life and death. Uh, because if you if you don't have somebody that knows what they're doing as far as towing out to uh, an area where it's you know clear other surfers and everything, it can be very dangerous and hazardous. And so uh, I think that was one thing that with this season, you've got to really understand the connection of the tower and the and the surfer uh, and you get to see that really well with the cinematography with the technology there that it affords it a lot more so than you did in season one yeah so so it's true like the, the whole dance the whole interplay and the very rehearse and skillful rescue missions is as fascinating almost if not more at times very much more dramatic because whenever there's a rescue mission going on right to pick up a fallen surfer, it means things have already gone haywire, right? But they're comparable in entertainment value 
to the the big waves. Which brings me to another funny point the episode brings up is that, you know, there's 30,000 people on the cliff, right? And they make this great analogy, especially as a sports podcast, like the World Cup, right? They, they bring up that you have football matches, right? And then you usually have surfing and there's crowds in like a football match, but not in surfing. But on this day, everyone was so sick of being stuck indoors for so long. And they thought it was okay to go out and watch the swell and the surfers which turns into all narrative in itself, right? Because the Portuguese government and the European media pick up on some of the footage of all these people gathered together, not six feet apart, right? Not social distancing and end up banning surfing for a good while in Nazare, right? And that's most of episode two is a downtime in the aftermath of that restriction, right? And watching these surfers sort of deal with that. Uh, but on this day, right, we get this Roman Colosseum-like spectacle, right? With the fans roaring and, you know, they keep calling themselves gladiators. I love that, right? And I think they're worthy of that because there is something so gladiatorial, that is also the antithesis because it's not so aggressive, right? It depends on your look, right? Like someone like Garrett has a very ma maternal and feminine relationship to the ocean, right? He always calls it Mama uh, Nazare, right? He gives offerings in the season. When there's a brutal day later, he, he says something along the lines of Mama Nazare was mad, right? And just like total carnage. He has this very maternal understanding of mother nature, right? And of the wave. And I think some people could have a completely different relationship, at least in periods, right? We see a lot of PTSD that different surfers have to go through after some of their wipeouts and close calls with death, right? And you could maybe think that at times in the dark corners of their psyche, they think of these waves in a more ma masculine, in the traditional sense. I'm being more Greek when I say these things, right? In the fierce and violent and just menacing monstrosity of the wave, right? So there's this beautiful duality going on, just like naturally in a very organic way in these people's relationship with mother nature throughout. But but here what we're getting is the spectacle of Nazare. And like I said, it's overcrowded. Everyone's there to try to get the big clip. They're kind of fighting as everyone knows, who knows anything about surfing, right? Like there's a sort of unspoken code of like, who's allowed to catch what, but there's a lot of ego out there. There's money involved, right? When there's a swell like this, because one good wave that's caught on camera could could set you for a year or two with your sponsorships, right? And it just, it, it, it makes the, the start of this season so strong, right? Like it immediately hooks you in, even though we don't have a buildup, like this crescendoing buildup like season one had. Here, it's the complete opposite. We're, we're thrown into one of the biggest days Nazare will ever have maybe in our lifetimes, or it's a, at least a decade-like defining day, it feels like, right? One of the big swells that, that no one's going to forget. And it really sets the tone for the season. We get a... We got to watch some of the biggest surfers just duking it out on there. Um, and it's not so competitive either, right? There is a lot of camaraderie. I don't want to overplay that fact, but uh, it really does a nice job of, of letting you know that this is going to be a more panoramic understanding and overview of the surf world. And it also sets up what Garrett's role is now, right? Garrett, to go along with what you were saying, right? With the importance of jet skiers, right? He is now a sort of secondary or passive role, even though we talked about how important, right, the tower is. You know, in the first season, he's always the one who wants to be on the surfboard catching the wave. And you're seeing him really sort of slowly come into peace and acceptance that he is now a little too old. He's been banged around too much. And he is pretty happy, as he says, like giving Cotty the wave of his life. He, he still feel, I think, feels years later, like he owes Cotty for towing him into his world record wave, right?
And he's he's there as a fatherly figure, um, even though him and Tony kind of come into some tension, I think, later. That's not really ever even touched upon explicitly. Right. Tony says that Garrett is the godfather of Nazareth, or at least big waves. Right. Like he is. I don't know if he says it word for word. But, but you know, he is the image you think of when you think of Nazareth. And Tony's goal is to be the next Garrett, right? I love that. This is kind of a season where the big star player, the athlete, becomes sort of the coach-like figure. And there's a sort of passing of the, the baton, and we don't know who's going to get it yet. Would you kind of agree with that in sort of Garrett's shifting role here? Yeah, I, I really likened it as kind of like the old gunslinger in the old West. Like he, he understands kind of where he is in the pecking order. He understands, you know, he's not, he's not as young as he used to be. And so he doesn't have, you know, like, as you mentioned, the body that can, you know, sustain the heavy load of wave after wave after wave. And so he understands kind of, he needs to take a step back. And I think in a lot of ways, it's a good showing of his maturity because I don't think season one Garrett would have been able to have kind of, assessed everything given the state of his marriage with his wife and uh, the upcoming baby understanding you know he has to be there for her in, in that time period and do surfing and so he uh, he sees that he understands that and knows you know i kind of have to take a step back and, and we see that and it's a good way of showing that maturity of you know i need to invest more in the younger generation even if like I said, coming into he- at logger odds with, with Tony, but investing in that next generation and, and having that uh, as a mindset and, and being able to be there for his family, for the birth of their new child uh, and be there for his wife, having that relationship while also still having that itch to get out there because, you know, as an old gunslinger, he still has one more, you know, duel left in him. And so he, he still wants to get that wave. And he still trains to do it, but he also knows that he has to pick his spots. He can't just go out and try to catch that wave every single time. It has to be at the right time, the right environment. And so I think this season really kind of shows his maturity in a good way and and has him kind of in that mentor, in that coach role, while, you know, at the same time having the mindset of wanting to still catch that wave, but knowing that he can't do it all the time. He definitely has graduated from that space to a degree, but there's still a temptation there. There's still that boyish glimmer in his eye at times, right? And you got to recognize that here's someone who already gave up surfing decades before and became a local like shop owner, right? That's where season one starts off, right? So he's already had one sort of renaissance or resurgence, much younger at that point though in his life, right? Where it was more feasible. But I read some interviews after this and it sounds like he's getting into, at least in his terms, the best shape of his life. And that he's ready to kind of get back on the saddle for one last hurrah. I just hope that he's at least a little more conservative because it feels like every time he does try to hit a big, big wave since he's set the world record since about like that early uh, 2013, 14, 15 era, he's had some serious wipeouts and barely managed to survive, really. So I hope there's a level of caution that goes with wherever he goes. I think that's why this season kind of shows that maturity, because in season one, you know, you had a lot of the bullheadedness. Uh, that he would just, you know, I'm going to surf, I'm going to surf, I'm going to surf, and just kind of pounded that in, even to the detriment at times of his relationship with his wife. But in this season, he really does understand, you know, you know, it's the whole Murtaugh effect, you know, uh, I'm too old for this. He understands, you know, I can't do what I did 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I can only do so much. 
And at the same time, I have a family that I need to watch after and take care of. And, you know, if I get hurt, seriously, I can't take care of them. So you, you see really more in this season, I think, that understanding of his mortality more so, I think, than in season one. Definitely. There's a huge motif about father time, about trying to get Beryl to ride waves, um, about trying to learn to be patient and step back and breathe, right? To meditate, to go slow. Like this is someone who doesn't know how to go slow, right? I think CJ talks about this a lot. Um, his wife's brother and his wife, we should name Nicole. She's such a important figure here right? Every time she talks about Garrett, it's with such insight, right? She's such a perfect companion for him, where she gives him the freedom he needs to let these things dissipate on their own, right? Like she tries to give him reason and practical advice, but she also knows that he has this itch that almost can't be craved unless he has to come to reality on his own terms as well, right? Which sometimes means he has to kind of get humbled and beaten by Mama Nazare, for example. Yeah. And, and yeah. I really love Nicole in this season. I think that she really stood her ground at times with Garrett and was the equal in the relationship that she needed to be, uh, especially when it got around time for the birth. It's like, you're going to be here. You're going to be involved. And it was really cool to, to see that maturity in the relationship, too. You know, we talked about the maturity in as far as, you know, surfing and everything but just that maturity as a husband and a father i think really kind of stepped up and i think it took nicole kind of making sure that he understood his purpose and his role in that relationship in the family i really give kudos to her about that yeah i mean and she's always a huge role out there right she's the kind of dual overseer the eyes in the sky she's got the binoculars and the walkie-talkie yeah she's the spotter like she's making sure that everybody is where they're supposed to be at when they go the timing and everything so she she definitely plays a huge role in the the surfing aspect too not just in the on the home side but also in the surfing side she has a definite role that she has to play and she does a great job with that too yeah and i i was thinking of also first solo right because so much of first solo is about you know Alex uh, Honnold's his relationship and and even the the film crew's relationship to him and their anxiety and worry and almost like paralyzing terror watching him free solo of Capitan right and the the role of a spectator the nerves they have to deal with and I always think of her right there's many days they're out there and it's her husband and her brother who she's dearly close with you know going again and again on you know on the rides of their lives on these fifty plus foot waves. And uh, she does a great job of keeping her composure, of turning what has to be like gut queasy defying fear into usefulness, right? She's she 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 turns that into very practical utility, right? I mean there's there's a moment here where CJ's under this season for a long time. They can't find him. That almost never happens. And even then she's not panicking to the degree that you might think she's just trying to find him she's communicating cogently and clearly and incisively to to rescue him to do what has to be done and it's got to be such a a great coping mechanism as well i'm not unaware that it's probably her way of dealing with it but it's very savvy it's very productive uh, you know she's kind of the brains in the sky she's also reading the swell and she's very good at it i was watching that this season and they talked about it in the first but i was really catching 
how she set them up for the monster waves. And and it, it takes an eye, right? You've been out there at the ocean, like looking at waves. It, they form fast. It's hard to see which ones are really the great ones. And so she, she does that brilliantly. Um, the other person that really is chronicled again, as we've already uh, been introduced to in the first season is Cotty here. And I really found his story one of the most intriguing. I really love it because it kind of strips the facade of this, you know, extreme sport and lifestyle of its pomp and panache to a degree and brings it back down to life. So it looks all rosy and like a dream, right? On social media. I think someone even says this almost word for word, but it's also full-time work, right? It's grueling work. Often they're out there exhausted, terrified actually, because they're human. And a lot of this is them trying to overcome the interplay of their fears, but also just the inconsistency and uncertainty of this profession and the the almost impossible task of managing any semblance of a normal quote unquote life. And Cotty, you know, he has kids. He has he has a family back in Ireland. And here in episode two, he goes through a divorce, right? He's living in a van. He's by himself during the pandemic because if there's a big swell that comes in again, he doesn't want to miss it. And he can't travel back and forth be- because of visa politics and because of all the variants of COVID. So he has to stay alone in like solitude in Nazareth. And I thought some of those scenes were very poignant, very revealing of the sacrifices that these people must make, right? Like the small scenes, like him getting a haircut, for example, at a small barber shop. No one's around. You can tell he's like utterly in solitude and barely getting by. He's on the verge of depression. You could hear it in him. And it, it, it's it's quite sobering. I really appreciated that in this this episode. What did you think about that whole sort of narrative through line here? Yeah, I agree. I thought that Cotty's story really is almost like emblematic of what everyone was kind of going through with during COVID and the lockdowns and how there was that disconnect sometimes with being able to, to be with family, uh, especially if you're very far away. And it also showed the difference between kind of the, the Garrett plan and how they would all travel as a family to wherever they were going. And so uh, they were always there as a unit. You had Garrett, his wife, their kids, CJ, the other family members that would, you know, kind of teach classes, do homeschooling with the kids. You had all that unit together that would go to Nazare to these different places together. But then you had Cotty who was separated from his kids who could only talk to him on FaceTime and miss that connect, that human connection of being close together and face to face with them. It, it really is just kind of that, that heart wrenching moment. It, it's one that, you know, everyone can kind of relate to with having, you know, kind of been through that. We all have those family members during that time that we couldn't connect with. We couldn't, be face to face with. And, you know, it was just kind of that reminder of that time period and seeing him struggle with that, as well as, you know, struggling with the lockdown of the surfing, because there was that, you know, couple of weeks or whatever, where nobody could surf. And so there was that problem of, you know, he's separated from his family, separated from his kids. And he's also separated from the sport that he was there to do and to participate in and so you really just that episode really is the the rock bottom i think of the the season just for his story and for the surfers and, and the people of nazare you know and it really is kind of 
from that point onward, it really is kind of taking that upswing uh, uh, going up for hope and for everything else. Once they get past kind of that really down part of season two of episode two. Yeah. I mean, it gets into the sort of dark downturn the whole world took, right? Where we were just forced to stay indoors, but imagine having to endure the pandemic as a big wave surfer who's somehow not allowed to surf, even though it is one of the most like socially distanced activities you could possibly do and isolated things you can do. Uh, One of the funniest parts of the whole season is Tony talking about how he's going to be allowed to surf again when there's the TV announcement that there's exercising outdoors uh, being permitted again, right? And he's like telling the camera, yes, we could surf the toe and the surfer six feet apart. When you switch, you're six feet apart. We're social distance. We can do it, right? And we do learn that they finally made that deal with the cops. Like they can surf until 1 p.m. They just can't post anything online. And it, it had all the stuff of the pandemic. It almost, the episode two is more of a time capsule of, of that utterly bizarre glitch in the matrix of our recent history, right? Where everything is sort of thrown up in the air and we live in this very strange, you know, reality for a good chunk of time. You know, it had all the politics of it, right? Where they do get banned and in trouble because of the huge swell that happened in October, 2020 and all the people who came and the media storm that that came from that. And the fallout of that, the boredom, Justine and Tony trying to skateboard to pass the time. You could just tell they're they're miserable when they're not out there in the ocean, as fatigued as they can get and as scared as they can be, they need to be out there almost as well. It's in their DNA, right? It's in their rhythm, it's in their habit, it's in their structure of life. And so it's just a lot of grappling with that very sudden change and that removal of something that means so much to them. Um, So moving now on to episode three and four, right? Episode three is Jaws, and it's pretty much primarily about Justine. We really get the backstory of Justine. Before she's, you know, here and there sprinkled in, but now we really learn about her, her relationship with Fred, her huge fall, right? She, She breaks both her knee and her shoulder in a wipeout at Jaws. We get her rehab story, right? I think it took her five months of physical therapy to get back on her feet. And it's almost like a great redemption arc. It's that great sports trope of someone who gets beat by an adversary and comes back and takes them down. It almost feels like a boxing match, right? And where this episode really works is in really setting the tone and the pacing to give you the backstory of her experience with Jaws and to then show her huge barrel run, right? Where she just gets one of the most beautiful rides in Jaws history. The waterfall right over her, her mouth to her feet, right? That that shot with the GoPro from the front of her board as she's riding and, you know, just getting sprayed and then it's thrown out is gorgeous. And uh, she's with all of these big name people at, at Jaws that day off the coast of Maui. And it's just a one of a kind lifetime, you know, wave that she rode. And it, they did a great job, I think, in this episode of setting it up. You know, we, we we follow her and Fred to Mavericks, right off the coast of Half Moon Bay in Northern California. Then we we get the big day at Jaws. A few little side stories, but I felt like personally, this was Justine's episode. What did you take away from her as a character and her career path and her relationship and this episode? Yeah, I, I think you kind of uh, encapsulated it really well that this is her episode. It, it kind of is her shining moment. 
And I really like that she got to come into her own with this episode and how she had to overcome so much. And and they showed all those struggles for her, you know, physically having to overcome all these injuries, mentally having to deal with the the struggle of those wipeouts and those injuries, uh, because that's just as much of a, a hurdle to overcome with the mental side of it as it is the physical side. So it really was good to see her grow in strength, both rehab physically, but also to have that mentality of, I can do this. I can accomplish this. I can ride that big wave and be that success. It was really cool to see her accomplish that and to be celebrated too. I think that's one thing I love about this show is the fact that, and we talked about it earlier, it's not a lot of, you know, huge rivalries within the people. There are some, but mainly it's people celebrating one another and how they go about riding these waves and, and cheering on one another and having that support. That's one thing that I really like about this this show and this series is they genuinely like one another and love one another and want the best for them. They're competitive. You know, don't get me wrong about that. They're very competitive and they want to have the record wave, but they want everyone to succeed and to do their best. And the support that they have for Justine as she, you know, overcomes her, her struggles, overcomes her injuries to get back to the top it is one of the cool things about this show. And I really like how they highlighted that with this episode. I agree 100%, right? That kinship, that sense of fraternity and brotherhood, uh, which is terrible to say on this episode because it's Justine. So take away the male connotations of those words, right? But this sort of familial element of being a big wave surfer really transcends the capitalistic, mercenary, competitive elements. You know, they're slightly there. And I think there's a few surfers who are more about that. But for the most part, you really sense that they're a community, right? And their relationship with the ocean connects them and supersedes any transient monetary pursuits. And I really appreciate that. Like after Justine gets her big wave, her boyfriend, Fred, was like trying to like, I think, grapple with it still. And she was as well, right? And I think they were really just trying to come back down to earth because it's so dangerous to at any moment in your career, be be cocky and think you've had this uncontrollable force conquered, right? (laughs) You caught one wave, like the the ocean is still ultimately immensely more powerful than you. Um, So we're we're getting, I think, their psyche trying to rationalize or in in an odd way, both celebrate their accomplishment and the successes that will come of that, right? And Fred is talking about, you know, all the views that they'll get and the sponsorships that they'll get and the awards and so forth. But at the end of the day, he says, like, we were out there for her to catch a wave, to gain her confidence again with Jaws. Like, we weren't out there just for, like, the viral fame. Like, those things come with it. We need to make a living. We're not, you know, living in la-la land. But I I think that resonates for everyone here. I think everyone ultimately loves surfing. And I think a lot of it is the danger and what that teaches people about themselves, right? And a lot of that is just about the thrill, the thrill of it and what that can do for just your sort of self-worth and sense of closeness and aliveness in the world, right? And existing in the world. It's, it's, it's one of the most, I would think, just vicariously, like soul awakening rushes you can ever have to be on one of those where I don't think you could be any more temporally in the now than riding one of these waves and to hear them sometimes talk about what it feels like and they're almost still unable to recapitulate what it actually is going through their mind at that moment 
right? It's often like this sort of back and forth of like submitting to the moment because it's so horrifying on some level that they have to trust their instincts and trust their skill set. And that was another thing, right? With Justine and catching this wave, I think she even says that she had to just trust herself and not try to control it. I love that. Now, the other focal point of this episode, who gets, I think, a lot of airtime in the second half of the season is CJ. And he's a quirky one, right? Like he's kind of off on his own thing. He's teaching the kids for a while. But you also realize like he's one of the most shy and I think retentive about the dangers of big wave surfing. And he's also just, he's an amateur. And I don't mean that in a, in the traditional sense, actually, because he, he hits some of the biggest waves of anyone on the show, but he isn't really a pro. He doesn't really dedicate himself to this full time. It's kind of capricious. He's kind of whimsical. What do you think about CJ? He's almost like the antithesis in some ways of Garrett, because Garrett is one who is very gung ho about surfing and, you know, it's his life and it really encapsulates kind of who he is. And you see that struggle with him. But with CJ, it's just kind of very laissez-faire with surfing. Like, he enjoys it. He likes it. But it to him, it's just kind of very goes with the flow of, you know, if I do it, great. If not, you know, I, I enjoy, you know, teaching, you know, homeschooling the kids. I love doing that. I love all these other activities that I do. And, you know, if I surf, that's great. But if I don't, Eh, that's great too. I mean, re- really, that's kind of his mindset. And it's interesting how in the later episodes, how he kind of picks up surfing again. And because the first couple episodes, it's just kind of really, you know, like I said, laissez-faire. He just, if he does it great, if it's, you know, if he doesn't do it, that's great too. But it's like the time goes on, he kind of sees how how much he enjoys surfing again. And maybe that's what it is too, is he kind of fell out of love of surfing and he kind of sees, you know, the joy of surfing again from kind of those around him since they're all kind of in that bubble of COVID that's there, you know, they, they're around all just the surfers and, you know, there's not a whole lot else to do besides that. He sees that. And so he kind of falls back in love with surfing. And so he picks it up again and wants to do it. So I think that's kind of the journey that he takes. Whereas with Garrett, it was more of the seeing the importance of family with CJ. It's almost seeing the fun of surfing again is the journey that he takes throughout the course of this season. Uh, I totally agree. Yeah. CJ is such a important character in this and such a eccentric character, right? He's very Zen-like. He's got a spirituality to him that resonates throughout. Um, And his journey in this season is really fascinating. Like he ebbs and flows in a very whimsical, capricious way. Uh, He's not necessarily a pro surfer. There's a lot of ongoing jokes about that. Even Garrett talks about it. His uh, sister, Nicole, talks about it, right? Who is CJ is kind of this, this question. And it's kind of comical. But it's also fascinating. It's fascinating on an existential level. And you get the sense, or at least I got the sense, that a lot of his life choices all do actually revolve around surfing. I think that Garrett is probably one of the most important figures in his life. You know, someone who's really summoning him to a calling, even though he might not be someone who is so inclined to follow one path, right? Or to be devoted into one task. Uh, But you get the sense that even when he's off the path of surfing, he's still going through the psychic motions he needs to go through to get back on the surfboard, right? When he's teaching, he talks about FOMO. He talks about trying to avoid FOMO, but you also get the sense that 
he's had a little bit of uh, over stimulation on the surfboard and he needs some attentive energy to be sublimated somewhere else that's safer. I thought one of the most beautiful parts of the series comes at the end when he talks about the fact that he's found new ways, right, to to get the same thrill, the same joy of surfing on land, right? And he, and he says, like, if he can get that heart pumping nervousness from other things in life and push himself and expand himself in ways that don't threaten his waking existence, his body, that's a beautiful thing. And so you get the sense that he's constantly trying to find a way to transubstantiate the thrill and the sense and the feeling and the love of surfing into, into spaces that aren't so dangerous, right? To displace that, that core joy he gets and to find new pastimes that will fulfill him spiritually and personally without actively threatening him. Um, at least that was my read. But also there's so much of this is him trying to overcome the the sort of stigma and actually the reality surrounding him is insofar as he's not a pro surfer and he's out there because he's Garrett's brother-in-law, right? There's a nepotistic element, right? There is a sort of a, a cronyistic reason for him to even be on the big waves in the big days to have, you know, a seat at the table, even though it's the ocean, no one really owns it. There is some sort of territorial, you know, trade-offs going on behind the scenes. And the fact that he's out there and not committed says so much of how powerful Garrett is, but also like how shaky his identity must feel at times, right? He must have the craziest imposter syndrome when he's out there sometimes. And he kind of says it, right? He has insecurities about belonging to the in crowd, right? About, about being accepted into the inner circle, into the clan, into the tribe, right? And where, whereas like Garrett is just completely 100% devoted to this thing. Uh, he kind of, he can't really take it or leave it because I think that's one thing Cotty says well, right? He says, sometimes you feel like he's, he's like that where he's very blasé and you get the sense that he's so nonchalant and zen about it that you don't know if he's committed. Then he goes into beast mode where he's just like fully after the waves, right? Um, and 100% invested in it. Um, but but what's really, I think, intriguing about him is the give and take of it all, his ability to go back and forth. And also in the, in Jaws, right, when he talks about that picture he drew as a kid and, and fulfilling that, it was kind of a beautiful storyline. His ability just as a human to weave and spin these self-mythologizing narratives I found pretty fascinating and intriguing as well. So, so CJ is a really, really interesting character to me throughout. Um, I really appreciated his input always. I appreciated his unique relationship to the sport and to see someone who is able to overcome that imposter syndrome and to actually like miraculously step up to the plate at times. At the same time, I think his insecurities about unworthiness were actually fair. They should be there because he wasn't as trained as others and he definitely took a beating for it later on in the season when he nearly dies, right? And they can't find him for a long time. And he really comes close to drowning and he dislocates his elbow. And you can see that shakes him to his core and he might be kind of done. We never know, right? There's kind of a, a, a weird sort of roller coaster ride they all go through after huge wipeouts where they, depending on how devoted they are in the first place, have to take a break for a while before they can get back in the water. But the other thing that I, I want to talk about actually is CJ, particularly in Cotty as well, in the relationships to both Garrett and Alamo. And I'm sorry if I'm botching the name, but Alamo is the Portuguese 
uh, avuncular figure, right? And he's way more attentive and receptive and passive. He's a better teacher, in my opinion, than Garrett. Garrett's a good tribal leader. He's very dominant, right? Uh, he's kind of bossy and peremptory. Alamo is softer. He's gentler. He watches and observes these people. Uh, he understands their traits and he works with them. And you could see him lure out the qualities of both Cotty and CJ in uh, episode five, Lost at Sea. And it's a beautiful thing. What did you think about their relationship to him? We could even jump there too to episode five and sort of the the blossoming of both CJ and Cotty under his, I guess, mentorship. Yeah, you kind of did a good job explaining that. He really is kind of that good cop. Uh, if Garrett is kind of the bad cop, as far as the relationship goes with Cotty and CJ and, and, and the other surfers, he's more of the good cop in that he listens. He understands he because he's not necessarily like the alpha male surfer. He can kind of share his thoughts and share his observations to them in a manner that's a lot more understanding and in a manner where you know, he can kind of show that compassion and caring to them and they can receive that in an easier manner, I think. And so I think that it's good to have those type of people there because you don't want to have everybody be kind of the alpha dog go getter guy. Sometimes you need to have those, those people there that can just listen and be a sounding board and, you know, they may not be the, you know, the elite of the group, but they can understand and, and, and relate to you on a different level. And so it was good to have that for them because that's what they needed. They didn't necessarily need the head honcho be the one you know, listening to them at, at that moment. They just needed somebody who could relate to them and understand them on a different level. And it's a good example that, you know, we in our relationships kind of need that too. We need to have those people in our lives where, you know, they're not necessarily the, the top dogs of, of where we are, but they're ones that can hear us and listen to us and understand us in that perspective of just relationally. Definitely. He's just a coach that gives them the space they need to develop. Right. I think that sometimes Garrett is way too mm, just, I mean, I want to just say it again, bossy, right? He's too pushy. He doesn't give people the leniency, the temporal uh, capacity to to ease their way into things. And for some, it really makes them wind up into a shell, right? And yes, Cotty works well with him. And CJ does work reasonably well with him, but you could see that they work even more fluidly, uh, especially in this episode with Alamo. And uh it's odd to say because they're, one of the closest calls is Cotty and Alamo and their whole fall and they, they get stuck in the rocks. And that that scene where you were thinking Cotty might be smashed into the rocks has got to be one of the most terrifying yet in this whole show. And uh, thank goodness they survived. But like even when you're working with someone that you're just jailing with, right, you're vibing with, you're on the same plane, things can go horribly wrong and a simple mistake can put you in a life and death scenario. So uh, I thought that was another really fascinating thing about this episode. Uh, the other thing that I uh, really clung to here, right, was CJ's like yogi sensibility. And I, I already brought that up, but there's some funny banter between him and Cotty, right? Where he's like saying, I think they're eating like lunch at a picnic table. He's like, but when's enough? Enough. When are we satisfied? Right. Um, though these two have an interesting way of questioning the compulsive, obsessive 
nature. And the, the whole series, I think, kind of confronts that sometimes. We have great moments with Justine and Fred, right? I think in episode two, where she's just battered and tired after a bunch of days and she's crying and she doesn't want to go out there, but she can't not go out there, right? And Fred's like, why? Like, he's also oddly inverted, I guess, in the more conventional gender stereotypes, right? He's the more feminine, practical, safe, cautious one, right? Who's always trying to rationalize with Justine. And I I found their relationship for that reason alone very, very intriguing. Um, just that sort of flipping or substituting of your normal, you know, archetypes on gender level. But we we also skip partners, episode four, right? And that we tapped into a lot of that. But I'd say the main thing though is the family getting COVID one, right? Uh, so if we see firsthand just how bad that is, and then the complications that come after that with Nicole and her liver, um, and the near, uh, I wouldn't call it near death, but the severe like health complications that threaten her pregnancy, right? So what did you think about this episode? Also, interesting thing about this is Garrett, meanwhile, is trying to organize the Nazare Toe Surf Challenge for the WSL, right? He's a director. Um, so he's like looking at the swells and so forth. So interesting episode, just kind of on a domestic level to see the inner workings of their lives, two major things going on. He's ahead of this huge event. They're also having complications with her uh, pregnancy. What do you think? Well, I, you know, I mentioned it earlier about the maturity that Garrett takes. And this episode is the one where it really shows that maturity level and the importance of family and taking care of family, even with him juggling his duties as the head of, of the surfing uh, art, you know, he understands, you know, the importance of being with his family and taking care of them. And you really see that in this dynamic because he makes it a point to stay, you know, with Nicole, with the kids and take care of them in the midst of dealing with COVID and dealing with this pregnancy and making sure that she's taken care of regardless of everything else that's going on. He puts them first. And I think, Really, that's the important thing with this is that he cares about them enough to make sure that that the baby's safe, that Nicole is safe, and that you know everything can go as well as possible, even in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around them. Yeah, I totally agree. You see his his maturity here, but you also see a little bit of his narcissism. I guess that's too strong of a word. He's definitely not uh, not a narcissist. Uh, his selfishness, right? Because like you tell Nicole's a little bummed that he's constantly on his phone checking for swells, even though he is responsible for all that. I think she talks about how that's his way of dealing with these heavy emotions and feelings going on, right? And with the with the stress surrounding her health scares, sort of like working helps him to not feel his feelings, right? He stays busy as a sort of coping mechanism, the same way that she does, right? On, on the cliff at the lighthouse overlooking them as the eyes in the sky. Uh, there's kind of a weird parallel going on there where work becomes this way of just escaping oneself. But, but I agree with you as well, right? Especially after the tournament, Nicole talk, talks a lot about how he's there for his family. He's present, right? He's such a good dad. And uh, you really see him starting to find peace in retirement to age gracefully. I say this all with a grain of salt because as I've read, he's ready to get back on that board and go hard. But at least in this phase, like at least he's starting to gradually find his footing just, you know, in a more familiar way as a more of a mentor figure than and a coach figure than an athlete himself. So yeah, really interesting episode. As we talked about, the competition uh, has a lot of 
tension because Tony is not brought in, um, but it also just exciting. I don't care for the competitions, honestly, as much as I like just the big swell days, right? Like the Super Saturday on Jaws and, you know, the pandemic Epsilon Day, right? Those to me are way more exciting personally than this sort of manufactured challenge where you have a, a running clock and so forth. And I think personally turning into a sport is a little clumsy, but it's still also fun. And I think the one thing that the challenge showed is how special Kai Lenny is, right? His front side 360s, just his flair, right? This different style of surfer comes out, right? Not just the guy getting the huge wave or getting barreled, but someone who does tricks, right? And Kai is really phenomenal at that. And this is also a cool episode because we meet Scooby uh, and his funny partnership with, I believe his name is like Von Keep. He's another Portuguese uh, surfer. Uh, they're kind of like partiers, especially Scooby. He's on Big Brother, the TV show in Brazil. He's a rock star, right? He always drinks and hangs out. He's on Instagram all the time. I mean, like just blowing up. And he comes from an interesting background. He said his, both his dad and brother went to prison. So like the ocean kind of keeps him on, on a path of uh, uh, avoiding incarceration or major trouble. But he's, you know, he's kind of a bad boy. He's kind of fun. So I took those two things away from this episode as well. Yeah. What, what did you think about Kai and Scooby? Yeah, the, they kind of show that fun aspect of surfing, kind of the not necessarily in it for the money. Obviously, they enjoy the money and getting that. But really, it, they kind of reflect that aspect of just enjoying the, the fun times of being out there and having the tricks and doing all the, the fun of it for the love of the sport, you know, for lack of a better term. That's what they're about. And, and you kind of see that playfulness. You know, you have some surfers that are just focused on the highest wave, whereas with those two, it's kind of more of the how can I have fun on the wave? You know, what 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 kind of tricks can I do? What kind of fun little things that I can do while I'm out there is kind of their aspect of it that they focus on. And I think it's good to have that on a show like this and in a documentary like this that shows that there there's not just one type of surfer out there. Like there are different types and they all succeed in whatever lane that they're in, whether they are the ultra competitive, whether they're the the one that does the tricks, whether they're, you know, the the casual surfer that just, you know, likes to get out out once in a while. You, you have all different types and yet they all do the same thing ultimately, which is, you know, surf the waves, but they all have different mindsets that they go about doing it. Yeah, that's what's so interesting, right? They're all different personalities and philosophies and perspectives doing the same exact thing, right? You see how each one copes and handles stress different and how it it shapes their psychology as well in positive ways, right? Like none of these surfers feel like they're not in almost complete control. Even the ones that are a little neurotic, right? Or a little mercurial or even partiers, you feel like they really have a, a sense of equipoise that most people lack. I, at least I did. I felt like everyone was quite grounded. <laughs> Even CJ, right? Who is one of the least grounded people on some levels, right? He's very like aimless. He's a drifter. He also has a, a deep self-awareness uh, and cognizance of his thoughts, of his emotions, right? And I, I find that very much a pro uh, and an enlightening quality of this series, right? That unlike, I mean, all athletes, I think have, have a, a high level of 
of knowledge about the self because of what they do, right? Because they push themselves. But here, I just, I found it even a notch above. I guess maybe some of the issues though is like, I think surfers aren't always the most articulate. Here, they're very good. And they also have like a very specific vernacular at times. So so you're not always getting the full complexity of what their experiences are, right? Uh, they lead to platitudes when they're trying to describe stuff about like how ineffable, like catching a wave is, for example. Yeah. And I and I think part of that too is it's something that you just have to experience. Like it's not something that you can explain. Like you just have to to have that be a part of who you are. And they understand that as far as like experiential type thing, that it's not something that you can just put into words. Like you just have to do it. Like you have to get out in the water, get out on the board and catch the wave. Like you can't really describe it. And so they don't even try to describe it. They just, you know, they're just all about doing it, which is why they will be willing to jump on a plane and fly halfway around the world to go catch a wave because it's that experiential factor uh, that means so much to them that really that they can't and don't even try to put into words. So well said, right? It's not like T.S. Eliot or Walt Whitman is going to actually be any different, right? You can't encapsulate the feeling of surfing one of these waves <laughs> into something as feeble as language. So yeah, that said, they're just stuck by the boundaries of that. So we have the images, we have the sounds, and we have their secondhand experiential reflections. And so from that, we can at least get just the slightest inkling of what it's like to be them. But if you're like me and too timid to ever even conjure up the notion of catching, you know, a Nazari type of wave, um, you're going to have to be, I guess, content with that. The other thing that this whole show and series gives me is just like a sense of awe and sublimity, right? Just a sheer sense of wonder and amazement and also humility watching them do these things that I think are almost superhuman just to overcome the gripping fear and to be out there sometimes for hours in cold waters, exhausted and still face mother nature in her most ferocious form, I think it's is pretty epic. Um, so now we, I think we've really tackled a lot of this. Episode six is called Force Majeure, a funny title considering the film <laughs> that recently came out, or the two films, if you count the Will Ferrell one. It's an odd nod to a, a throwaway line in the episode, but I found this to be a, a pleasant and poignant anticlimactic finale to a kind of scattershot season in the sense that I'm not saying that in a negative value statement way. I'm just saying that in the just the structural and tonal elements, right? As we mentioned earlier. But, you know, in episode six, we kind of get the cliffhanger where CJ's hurt. He, he washes up ashore finally after being unspotted for like five minutes. Um, but he's like screaming in pain and you kind of get everyone very shook by it, right? It takes a, a good part of the episode for I think even Cotty to kind of get over his own trauma with, with CJ's near death experience. And then we get one more WSL contest. We get a very heartwarming story where Justine brings Tony on her team, as we mentioned earlier, so he can finally realize his dreams of competing on the world-class stage. And then we get the super bummer, just, I don't want to say karmic because it's the opposite of karmic, but bad karma, right? Where she breaks her ankle on basically her first wave, which might be I don't even want to say that, but but a weird part of my brain said, well, maybe he wasn't ready because he was towing her in, right? Maybe he didn't put her on the right spot, which is kind of what happens there, right? She's kind of in the, the poor placement 
of the wave and which is why she falls, but also someone cuts her off. So you can't put that on Tony. So take that back. But anyways, just bad luck, fluke bad luck. Faye doesn't want Tony yet to be able to compete in an actual event. We do get a nice little postscript with him. I say postscript because it feels like an afterthought, but he goes, I think somewhere in Spain or another part of Portugal or Spain, wins a small event. He gets an ice bath. He's excited. His dad's happy. Uh, It's super fun. It's this great moment, I feel like. Anticlimactic though. So I'm excited for season three to see what he does. And then it ends with Garrett kind of reflecting on his life, taking Beryl out for a day. They're going on some nice, beautiful, glassy waves. Beryl was scared the whole season to ride. He finally is out there. He's looking like a natural. As his dad says, if his name is Beryl and he catches a single barrel, he's set for life. Um, (laughs) Right. And at least for now, we have this narrative arc if there is any throughout that he's this aging gladiator who's finally turning his back on the ocean in the sense that he's reorienting his relationship to it right you can't reverse the clock entirely even though he still longs for big waves he's living more vicariously now through cj through Cody, through his kids he's become a family man so um those were my primary takeaways from the ending of the season uh, do you have anything else to throw into that Yeah, one of the things that really stood out to me with this season was how they teased that big crash that CJ had throughout the episodes. Like they made it a point to kind of show the freneticness of what happened right before. They they show kind of the the long shot of the crash. They show the freneticness of everyone trying to to rescue for a good four or five episodes, you don't know who it is. And so anytime that there is a wipeout, you know, you're wondering, what well, is this the one? Is this the one? And so they, they really did an impressive job of teasing that out so that once it actually is shown that it's CJ, uh, you know, it really has kind of a dramatic effect to it. And I think that really was, you know, I was impressed by how they kind of teased it out. Because sometimes you you tease something out and it doesn't have that, follow through that impact with it and and it's disappointing but i feel like the way that they did it and how they kind of followed through with it i was really impressed by that and going back to garrett you know you know as we've talked about through this episode and i mentioned it earlier about how he's like that that gunslinger the old gunslinger he understands that he can't go out there with every wave that's out there he has to pick the right one and i think that that really goes into that mindset of enjoying the waves enjoying the time out there but not having to feel like that you have to be on your game all the time like you have to find the right one and you know i mentioned that how i like his maturity in 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 finding that and really you see that at the end it's like he he still has the love for surfing it's not like he lost his love for it and it's not like it's all consuming it's that right balance and i think that really this season almost is a understanding of balance it's finding that balance for cj between all these other things and surfing for garrett it's finding that balance between his relationship with his family and with surfing with Cody, it's finding that balance of you know being away from his family and wanting to be with them and with surfing uh, with tony it's growing up and and wanting to dive right in but also understanding you know you got to pay your dues, so to speak. Uh, for Justine, it's finding that balance between dealing with injuries and, and coming back and, and struggling with those issues and, and finding that you know championship form again. So really, it, 
if there's one word to describe season two, it's really balance. And I think that the filmmakers did a great job of kind of showing that throughout the season with the different people that we come in contact with, with the show. And I really enjoyed it. And I hope there is a season three uh, because I want to continue on with these stories uh, because I really am invested in these people. And I, I always say a good documentary does a great job of making you invested in people and their stories and wanting to see more. And I feel like with this group and with this, these filmmakers, they do that job well. Yeah, I love this focus on balance, right? There's a, a true reconciliation, right? As you said, right? A CJ, adrenaline and trepidation, the non-surf lifestyle versus the surf lifestyle. Cotty, I think someone says that he's always on the dance between safety and insecurity, right? And he gets some of the most brutal batterings out there. And they all kind of go through, like, I think the same push and pull, right? Because it is more powerful than them. Like, you see how the narrative creates itself because the wave creates the narrative. I think for me, that's kind of a great way to encapsulate this. I saw a quote where uh, I think Garrett McNamara tried to define season two. And he said that it was about weaving in other characters and other stories. And he also said the main character started out as Nazare. And now it's the metaphor of the 100-foot wave which I love, but I also want to like shift. I feel like the first narrative was actually him, but he's too <laughs> modest to say that. And now it really has become Nazareth. I feel like that is this series, right? Like if you're going to tell someone what's it about, it's about Nazareth. And I, I do agree with him on the second point. It is about the metaphor of the 100-foot wave, not the wave itself, but what it means. And he continues. He says, life is a 100-foot wave. Bring that vibration and that frequency to wherever you go and whatever you do. And that really nicely kind of echoes CJ's comments about taking surfing off the board and putting it into life. It's a, it's a very common latitude used in yogi. Take the yoga mat into your daily practice, right? It's actually quite hard, actually, doing a, a really intense like flow yoga. And, you know, it, it's about having that poise and that composure in all that you do. And having that sense of inner peace. And I think that like, I feel like maybe that's a good way to wrap up the season too, right? There's this sense of everyone coming to peace, at least at this stage in life, because it's always stages, right? There's going to be another season. I say that, I don't know, but I feel like, I feel like this is very, very coolly and calmly successful. And I hope that, that they'll continue with it. I'll definitely be watching it. But uh, there'll be more stories for all these individuals, right? And more ebbs and flows and ups and downs. But I think this one nicely captures a tone. And as you pointed out, like it has a weird structure retroactively, even if it felt kind of jagged, like it had no direction. When you think back, you kind of see, oh, they were developing Justine and Tony and CJ and Cotty in a way or shaping their narrative and mythology in a way that kind of had a, a, a resolve. And of course, Garrett as well. But but they but they were sculpting something here. There was something being shaped organically and intuitively. And that's kind of the funny thing even about reality TV is that sometimes it's really awful and sometimes it's really delicate and fragile and sensitive, but edifying and illuminating and and narratively rich. And I think that some cultures really bring that out naturally. And this, I feel like surfing in this little community has such a, a mellifluous way of, of creating storylines that are just resonant and universal and life-affirming and, and really cool. And I feel like the people behind this, I want to give them a quick shout out, do a really great job. It has that chef's table kiss. I mean, the Philip Glass score gorgeous, right? The strings, amazing. The, the cinematography, the editing, it, it's high quality for, 
at this point, really just being a sort of like annual, biannual uh, documentation of uh, ensemble, a clan, right? A group of people doing a certain thing, which is so common. We have so many of these types of shows, but uh, but this one for me really, really sticks out in that. That's why I call it personally um, an underdog film. And I know you've been on a few times, so you know how it works. Where does this land for you? Is it an underdog or is it overrated? It, it's very much underdog. I think really, especially with this season, it, it's different than the first season because Again, we mentioned how there's a length of time with the first season, so it's easier to kind of craft that narrative and storyline that you have in season one. And here in season two, the time is a lot more condensed, and so it's harder to navigate it. You know, as far as telling a narrative story that's comparable to season one, but I think it's it's good how they told the story this way in that it's a little bit jagged to use one of the words that you described. It is a little bit jagged. It's a little bit kind of disheveled, but at the same time, it hits all the same notes that we know and are familiar with with season one. And so it really kind of gives an, that next level to the storytelling, the next level to where they're going in, in their journeys. And so it makes it as compelling as season one and makes you, again, I hope for season three. Uh, I know you do too, because you want to keep following these people on their journeys because, you know, you're invested in them. You want to see them succeed. You want to see them as they pursue this hundred foot wave, whether they get it or not is irrelevant. It's more of the journey with them that you get to be a part of. That's what's exciting. And that's what makes it such a, a compelling story to watch, whether you love surfing whether you don't love surfing, whether you have absolutely no idea which end of the board is which. Like you get invested in these stories, you get invested in these people. And that's what really great filmmaking and great storytelling is about. Awesome. I love that. Eloquently said, I I couldn't agree more, right? I feel like that was such a obvious point, but such a important point that we hadn't touched upon yet. And it's just like why this works so well is that these people are so, so inherently likable, right? You want to follow them and learn more about them and root for them and cheer for them and celebrate them. And I love that you brought that up as beautifully as you did. So thanks for coming on as always. It was a great conversation. And I just want to let you give a shout out. We didn't even bring it up yet. Mikey's from Screen Nerds Podcast. He does great work over there. Lots of reviews. Um, as you probably understand from the intro, he's really into anime, uh, but he's into everything. He's into sports movies. He's into it all. So let our listeners know where they can find you and interact with you. And you can give, I guess, a quick, if you would like, synopsis of your podcast for them. Yeah. So the Screen Nerds podcast, it's I always like to say it's a podcast for film lovers, by film lovers, really just celebrating the films that we enjoy and getting people involved with that and each episode is you know pretty short for the most part you know uh, a quick screen review which is a review of a new film right out of the theater you know get the reaction to the film typically about 10 to 15 minutes just kind of my thoughts my reflections on the film whether i liked it what you know what did i like some honest critiques uh, if there is something to, to critique about it but really just kind of what are my first feelings right out of the theater that's kind of the quick screen episodes and then rescreen episodes are 
favorite films of mine, going back and rewatching them and then kind of sharing my thoughts of uh, the first time seeing the film and then kind of my thoughts on the rewatch. Those tend to be a little bit longer just because there's kind of more to kind of flesh out of thoughts and feelings there. But even those are, you know, at the most like 30 minutes or so. So pretty good bite-sized episodes that that you can check out and listen to. About 175 episodes in as far as just reviews. So lots of films that you can go back and listen to in the archives. And you can find that anywhere that you get podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Good Pods, CastBox, Amazon Music. You can find them anywhere that you get podcasts. Just search out Screen Nerds Podcast uh, and you'll find the podcast there. And as far as interacting with the show, you can find us uh, socially on Twitter at Screen Nerds Pod. You can find us on Facebook. Just search out Screen Nerds Podcast and like the page there. And then you can also email Screen Nerds Podcast at gmail.com. So that's the show. And again, Paul, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate being on with you. Really love just talking about all these different shows and films that that we get to talk about and it's always a fun entertaining and illuminating discussion that we get to have i couldn't agree more thank you as well and uh i have to say this too it's it's so funny anytime there's like talk of one of these sports documentaries i know mikey's gonna be the one who's seen it and i think that's how we started this one i was just like is anyone seen this in my, you know, Twitter circle? And no one responded but you, but I knew you at least would because you're always on top of these. You're like the guru of these very miniseries type, docuseries type sports uh, streaming projects that that we're getting inundated with. And I couldn't be happier about it. I actually think most of them are pretty solid. And uh, I look forward to doing more of these with you in the future. So once again, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks again. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please, if you haven't yet, give us a like, a five star, whatever platform you're on. Just give us some engagement so we can get boosted in the algorithm. Besides that boring little piece of, I guess I can call it petty begging. Uh, That's it. Sorry to bug you at the end. You don't have to do any of that either. But thanks for listening. And we're excited to continue with all the things we're continuing on so check in uh we're going to be back with more sports or sports adjacent content coming up so thanks for listening bye everyone